So Jason is going to do our scripture reading for this morning, and he's in Proverbs 30. So why don't you go ahead and turn there. And would you all stand, if you're physically able to stand, for the reading of God's Word. And Jason's going to bring Proverbs 30, verses 5 through 9. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Amen. Good job. Thank you. And you can have a seat. God bless you all. Glad you're here. We're in Exodus chapter 20. The topic is the Eighth Commandment, do not steal. So I'm not going to have you stand up again because you just have to stand up and then sit right back down because that is the text. It is (laughs) Exodus 20, and it is verse 15, and it reads, you shall not steal. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the Ten Commandments. We have been moving verse by verse through Exodus. We're grateful for every precious soul that's gathered in this place to hear your voice. So help me get out of your way. Let it not just be the voice of a man, but let it be your voice through your word, speaking to your people what you would say to your church in this very hour. Thank you for your word. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. And last time we were together, we looked at a prayer in Psalm 139 that says, Search me, O God. Know my anxious thoughts. Try me. Search me deeply. And Lord, if there's any hurtful way in me, lead me away from that. Lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in your ways. And your word, your law is a light. It's a mirror. It does reflect the true nature of who I am. And it drives me to the reality that I need a Savior. Thank you that the Savior came, fulfilled the law, died on the cross for us. We're so grateful, but these commands still have something to say to us. And certainly this is an important one, so help us to understand it, to apply it, and to look at the positive side of it as well for your glory. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You shall not steal. Exodus 20, verse 15. The word steal, if you're a note-taker, is ganab in Hebrew. It's G-A-N-A-B, if you're taking notes, ganab. It is um, different from another Hebrew word called gazal, G-A-Z-A-L. That word has the idea of an overt act or a kind of a smash and grab. You don't care who's watching. You just steal stuff. It could be a home invasion. It could be uh, someone stealing a car in broad daylight, that kind of thing. The word here for steal in the Eighth Commandment is a different word. It's actually a word that means to steal by being stealthy. It's more of a covert word. That is that you would kind of be doing it on the sly. You're trying to hide what you're doing, but you're stealing nonetheless. And that is the particular word that is in the Eighth Commandment. Now, both are wrong, of course. Both uh, words would be wrong to break those commandments, but... Uh, This is the particular word, to steal by stealth, is the Eighth Commandment. Here's a definition, a wider definition. Stealing is taking something that doesn't belong to you without permission. It means technically to appropriate or take 
someone else's property unlawfully. Years ago when we were a smaller church, we had J.P. Moreland come from Biola University. He's a tremendous theologian and philosopher. And he was uh, talking to us about relativism. And relativism is this idea that there's no absolute truth. Truth is relative. It's basically just depends on how you feel. Your truth, my truth, their truth. Everybody's got their truth, right? And so basically he was having a debate with uh, a friend of his who was in the same dorm room at college And the friend believed in relativism, that all truth is just kind of up to you and it's how you feel. And J.P. Moreland, a young budding philosopher and theologian, argued for objective truth. That is, truth is based upon objective standards. It's not how we feel about it. And so back and forth, they debated, and you know they were training in the academic realm and college and all this stuff. And so after the conversation was over, JP grabbed the guy's boombox. If you don't know what a boombox is, back in the day, there used to be these boxes that had speakers, and you'd carry them around, usually going boom, 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 boom. Anyway, it played music, and it looked like a suitcase. That's all you really need to know. So anyway, JP grabbed the guy's boombox and began to go out of the room. And the guy was like, hey, you can't take that. That's mine. And JP was like, why can't I take it? My truth is that I should be able to take your boombox right now and leave this room. All of a sudden, the guy changed, and he believed that the Eighth Commandment was very important (laughs) to him. Uh, Not that many years ago, my car was parked on our street, and someone broke into my car and stole my golf equipment. I took that very personally. (laughs) And my racquetball stuff. And... Yeah, it was a tragedy, total tragedy. And then you know how insurance goes and trying to figure out deductibles and all that stuff. Well, in the end, the stuff was missing and it wasn't the end of the world. But you do feel, and some of you have had people break into your home and stuff, and you feel violated, don't you? You're like, why would that person come and feel like they had a right to grab my stuff? That's my stuff. Now, I don't know if some guy's on a tee box this morning with my driver. That's my driver. Those are my golf clubs. Now, maybe it was a sign from heaven that my golf clubs were stolen because golf is a frustrating game. Maybe it was a sign from heaven. I, I don't know. If confronted, maybe the guy would reply, I was simply administering the golf clubs in Pastor Michael's absence. I don't know. It's kind of a joke. But anyway, never mind. Some of you have been watching the news and you know that we have kind of raised the uh, amount that you can steal in today's culture and it remain a misdemeanor. And now because of the way laws have been written and liberal DAs in certain cities like Los Angeles and New York and other places, it's becoming easier and easier for thieves to be brazen about stealing stuff. In California, for example, if you steal below $950 of merchandise, it's basically a misdemeanor. And because the laws have become so soft in some of our cities, thieves are just basically walking into stores. They are stealing stuff right in front of security guards. And they all interview these security guards. And the security guards basically say, I can't do anything about it. Because if the police come to our store and arrest this individual, they'll let them right back out of jail. And the people don't even care anymore as long as they stay below the limit. So here's a story that just came out. Michael Rappaport, who's a uh, 
comedian and actor. I don't know much about him, but he was in New York City, and uh, he said he was disgusted by seeing a man go into a Rite Aid, fill two bags with stolen goods right before him nonchalantly as he began to film the man. He strolled right past the security guard, and because of these types of crimes, Rite Aid has said that they're closing that particular store on February 15th, largely because of thefts uh, to the pharmacy chain, and they just can't, uh, they can't endure it anymore. They're just going to shut down the store because thieves are just coming in and, and, and stealing. And so the video shows a man, Rappaport uh, got the video on his phone, walk right past the security guard out the door after apparently filling up two bags with stolen goods. The guard doesn't even try to stop the thief, all on film, who also doesn't seem to have a care in the world. I can't believe I'm seeing this, said the actor, and he adds a few colorful words. This expletive guy just filled two bags up with everything in Rite Aid right here on 80th and 1st Avenue and is walking down the street, he says in the video, looking me in the face like, what's good? My man just went Christmas shopping in January, he said. He has all this stuff, you know, that he put in the bag. And Michael, who tagged the New York City mayor, Eric Adams, in an Instagram post later added, I was just informed that the Rite Aid is closing on February 15th. He basically tells TMZ, I'm hoping things will change. And then afterwards, they do uh, an interview with a man who's standing in the store. And you can see some empty shelves, and it's in the wake of some other thievery and people just taking stuff and feeling like they can get away with it. And, the, and this older gentleman, microphone from a reporter, says, you know, there used to be right and wrong in this country, but it's going away. Now, did you hear that? I don't know where that guy stands spiritually. I don't know what he believes morally, but he says, we used to have right and wrong in this country. Now, something I want to tell you that is extremely important is this. When you start to remove foundational Judeo-ethic principles and morals, booting the Ten Commandments out of schools, saying that the only one that could determine truth is a personal individual. We talked about this last time in other realms of life where people are saying, I just feel a certain way, so this is what I am. Well, if someone says, I feel like I can steal your stuff, at what point are we going to finally say enough is enough? We've gotten to the point where it's just become ridiculous. But this is where we live. And it would be easy for me to preach the next half an hour and tell you about all the wrongs that people do, but I have to tell you that the command, do not steal, is first and foremost to my own heart. Uh, I was with my buddies, and we went into a uh, sporting goods place. Uh, it was called Pat's Ski and Sport. And my friends were, uh, I had my eye on this cool jacket, and my friends began to coax me. They began to pressure me to steal it. And they're like, just take it, man. You want it? We, we, you take it, we'll just run out of here. Well, finally, I succumbed to the pressure, and I grabbed this jacket, and I ran out of the store, and we got out of the sight of the you know, store, and, and we're off we were. And I, and I want to just calm you down and let you know that, don't worry, this was several weeks ago that I did this. <laughs> so it's behind me now. It's all. <laughs> I'm kidding. I was actually like 10 or 11 years old. And Mom, I don't know if you remember this story. 
Oh, no. You didn't know about this? Do you know, I'm in my 50s and still my mama scares me a little bit. Anyway, we'll talk later, mama. But anyway, so now you should remember this because here's what happened. So my friends began, my friends who talked me into stealing the jacket began to call my house anonymously and say, your son stole the jacket. (laughs) Son stole the jacket. (laughs) This is what your friends will do to you. They will try to talk you into doing something dumb and then they'll tell on you. Well, they told on me and I was a Catholic, Italian Catholic, and I had to go to confession. And so when you go to confession, you're supposed to admit what you did to the priest and then they tell you how to, you know, make amends. I went through the confessional about 15 times before I finally confessed. Maybe not 15. That was more like three times. And finally I told the priest, I stole a jacket. I stole. And in the Catholic Church, they tell you prayers to say. So I was given, you know, 75 Hail Marys and whatever else. And I, I vaguely remember having to return the jacket. But anyway, you say, what's the point of the story, Pastor Michael? Simply this, your pastor's a thief. <laughs> you need to know that. You might want to reconsider where you're worshiping. I don't know. No. <laughs> now, I have to tell you that when it comes to this issue of stealing, Ray Comfort has done a great job by using the Ten Commandments to show people how much we need a Savior. And he'll often say to people, you know, have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever stolen anything? And then he'll say, it doesn't matter the value of the item that you took. It could be a paperclip. It could be a pencil. If, you, if it didn't belong to you, if you borrowed something and didn't return it, everybody's like, well, did I? Right? That's a form of stealing. If you don't give your employer your best, you're on the clock at work, but you're on your phone, or you're not doing what you're supposed to do, that's a form of stealing. Have you ever stolen somebody's dignity with your words? Stolen someone's reputation with gossip. There are many different forms of stealing. And when the light of the law shines into my heart, I begin to see that I've broken this commandment probably more times than I'd like to admit. And that's what the law does. The law shines a light on my life and shows me that I need a Savior. One writer says, stealing threatens the social order and causes pain and loss to others. It robs people of what they have earned and what they use and what they need. This could include clothing, goods, equipment, families being torn apart. It could include time, money, endless amounts of money spent on security systems, security guards, etc. Endless resources to deal with stealing. Individuals, employees, government, big business all have their hands in the cookie jar. And stealing includes robbing others of their purity, their reputation, their security, and many other things. The Heidelberg Catechism summarizes by saying that in the Eighth Commandment, God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, making something look different than it is. Deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse of squandering all of his gifts. 
If you squander money, that's a form of stealing. And there's also a form of this where you omit the right thing to do. So you should have maybe, let's take the, remember every command has a negative. So the stealing is do not, that's the negative. The positive side of the command is to be a steward. If you're taking notes, we're not to be stealing, we're to be stewards. Now what's a steward? A steward is a manager of someone else's resources. So Joseph was a steward in Potiphar's household in the book of Genesis. But a steward basically takes his master's resources and uses them according to his master's intentions. If you call Jesus Lord of your life, everything that you have has been given to you by God. And your call is not a tithe or it's not, you know, Israel being under the law, your call is to open up your life to your Lord and realize that everything that you've been given is a gift from heaven. You would have nothing unless it first been given to you from heaven. And you open up your heart and you open up your life and you say, Lord, whatever you want to put into my life and whatever you want to take out, I am a steward. My Lord will instruct me on how to deal with what he has given me. That is the Christian ethic. That is the Christian attitude. That's what we're called to do. I'm going to share several um, accounts with you in a moment, but I want you to turn to a few New Testament passages. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8. Now, Paul is addressing the Corinthian congregation about a gift that they uh, had promised to give, and he's using another church as an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And here's what he's going to share about this church, and it's insightful. Before we read the passage, I think just a couple of basic things about a steward is I want to have my father's heart first so that then my resources can follow with his heart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, if you're taking notes, basically to summarize, it's required of a steward that we be found faithful. Faithful to what? There in, in uh, that particular passage, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Paul's talking about stewardship of the gospel, about guarding it and giving it away appropriately. But here in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 1, he addresses some of these topics and he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. This is what he wants. He wants you first and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would complete in you the gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, Paul is using kind of a spiritual image there, but 
you get the point. He's saying, first we give ourselves to the Lord, then we give out of that. I want to say to, to this group of people and those who are watching that I know some of you have had really bad experiences with the church. The church has not been immune, and I'm talking about the church now all around the world, has not been immune to greed and deception. Sadly, some men who stand in pulpits across this country have manipulated God's people for their own gain and are living lavish, extraordinarily lavish. I'm not talking about they're just doing well. I'm talking about they are living lavish lifestyles at the expense of God's people. And I can tell you firsthand stories where I've had people in this community come to us and say that they were ripped off of land they owned in their family or cars or the like by manipulating preachers who basically put people under the law of Israel and rip them off and manipulate them for their own selfish gains. And the only one really sitting on the top of the hill is the preacher with the slick tongue who's used scripture out of context to rip off God's people. And I will tell you, Men like that are going to give an account on the day of judgment. And I just want to say, if you've been hurt in that way, I'm sorry. Because that is not what the Christian church should be. If anything, we should be known for our giving. We should be known, oftentimes giving builds a bridge, a bridge to authenticity. Here's what I mean. Someone may not listen to you. Maybe they, they've had a bad experience. Maybe they think that the church is all about money. But when you show a different attitude, it opens up a bridge to share the gospel. Many years ago, I was playing a lot of slow-pitch softball, and I had a friend that I was trying to work on inviting him to church all the time. And he kept saying, no, all the church just wants your money. The Christian church is all about your money, your money, your money. And finally, he agreed. I, I mean, this went on for a couple of years. And finally, he agreed to go to church. I said, no, my church is different. It's a great, loving group of people. Rarely do they ever talk about money. They just want you to hear the gospel, hear the truth. And on the Sunday that he came, they handed out a paper bulletin, and the title of the message was, The Lord of the Wallet. <laughs> and I was like, no! How could it be? The one Sunday he came, and the whole service, he was guarding his wallet. None of you people are going to come approach me. Now, I will say that sometimes when money gets raised, maybe it's more about us than it is about the message. And maybe we're clutching the God of mammon a little tighter than we'd all like to admit. Because mammon was a false god in the ancient world. And Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon, which is money. And so money can be a wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master. And if money has become your God, you will never have enough. You will never be satisfied. And look, there are people who get to the top of the hill, the top of their profession. They've made gobs of money. They don't even know what to do with all the money they have. And they are empty as empty can be because money doesn't do it. On the flip side of that, I would say Christians ought to be responsible. We ought, to, we ought to invest wisely. We ought to put money away for the future. We should leave an inheritance to our children and our children's children as much as possible. 
We should live as though the Lord's not coming back in our lifetime. Now, I know world events are crazy right now. I know there's a lot of stuff going on. And, and for those of you who study prophecy, you're watching Israel and you're watching Russia and all these other things that are going on. But look, maybe we experience the second coming of the Lord. Maybe we don't. We got to be careful. And we've got to make sure that we plan as though the Lord's not coming in our lifetime so that we're not sitting, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now and wishing that we had done things differently. Now, I'm not trying to bag on anybody if you're in a position like that right now, but I'll just say it's good that we would be wise, that we would put away money, that we would invest wisely, that we would pay off debt. If you are, you know, knee deep in credit card debt, get out. Because those interest rates on credit cards, they call it revolving debt for a reason. And it means that you're never going to pay it off. If you make the minimum payment on a credit card, you will never pay it off. It will take you probably your whole life to pay it off. So you've got to be wise. Believers, lives, resources are to be governed and directed by God. God is the ultimate giver, and my life should reflect his heart. Here's R. Kent Hughes. Every time I give, he says, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money, close quote. Hughes is basically saying, every time I give, I tell money, you are not my God. I tell money, look, my priorities are far beyond my wallet. I want to live my life to be like my father, who's the ultimate giver, amen? So you say, Pastor Michael, how do we do this kind of stuff? How do we change our attitude? Go to Ephesians, which is just a, a little bit to your right as you keep going in the New Testament, chapter four. So one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and put on the new man or the new self. In Ephesians four, Paul's topic is that very discussion. In verse 24 of Ephesians four, he says, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, Ephesians four twenty-four, and holiness of the truth. Now he goes through about, he says, basically, once you've done that, the outgrowth of that is going to be, you're going to be a person who tells the truth. Uh, verse 25, that's a commandment we're going to talk about, about not bearing false witness. It's going to affect your anger. In verse 26, you'll have uh, righteous anger, but you won't let anger turn into sin, and you won't you know, let it fester. That's Ephesians 4.26. You won't open up the door to the devil. And then look at 28. He who steals must steal no longer. He's writing to Christians at the church of Ephesus, so obviously this was an issue. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. And we could say legitimate need because we know obviously there are people out there with signs and stuff and they're, make, they're raking in money and that's another form of stealing and manipulation. So be careful that you don't hand people money with those signs because people who use those signs, a little behind the scene investigation is they may be making more money than you make in a day. So you gotta be careful. You say, well, what should I do? You could offer to buy them a meal. Just make sure that you're, you're safe and you, you know, you're not exposing yourself to any compromising situations with a person you don't know. You could carry gift cards around, and you could just say, look, if you want something to eat, maybe it's a gift card to McDonald's or whatever, Chick-fil-A, and you have a gift card you could give somebody. 
Don't hand people cash because probably well over 90% of people in those situations are abusing some substance. Not all of them, but most of them. And probably the first thing they're going to do with your money is go get their next fix. That's just the cold, hard reality. So even when you give, you have to give with wisdom and do it in a way that's wise. Paul, who, of course, gave his whole life away after he met Jesus, he said, in everything I showed you, Acts 20, verse 35, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. You want to live a blessed life? Be a giver. And I'm not just talking about your finances. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your spiritual gifts. I'm talking about your time resources, your taking time to love people. All of it fits with a giving heart and a giving attitude. I'm going to show you just a few stories in the Gospel of Luke. Let's turn back there, and we're going to kind of fill in some of the color on the canvas, if you will. We've given you the foundation, but let's look at the book of Luke. I'm going to give you three stories about giving and the heart behind giving. The first one is in Luke 10, and we know this story as the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. And this is a man, when he asked Jesus the question, he's a lawyer, 1025, which means he's not one of those, uh, you got in an accident, call 1-800-LAWYER. This lawyer is an expert in the Ten Commandments and all the commandments. He's a law expert, uh, a scribe or something like that. A lawyer, Luke 1025, stood up and put Jesus to the test. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. Jesus said to him, Luke 1026, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, have you ever had a conversation And when you reflect back on the conversation, you wish you would have just ended it. And you realize by letting the conversation go on for five minutes more, especially with the intention of self-justification, you you say something like this, oh Lord, if I could only rewind the tape, (laughs) it would be so much better because seeking to justify myself, I opened the box and now mayday, mayday, pull up, pull up. Wouldn't it be nice if the conversation just ended right there? Do this and you shall live. All right, yeah. But that's not what the lawyer was up to. He put Jesus to the test, but he's about to, put, to be put to the test. Who is my neighbor? Just the person that lives right next door to me? Who is it? Across the street, within 50 feet of my home, who is my neighbor? Oh, that's the question. Here's the answer. But wishing to justify himself, he asked, and Jesus replied, 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a dangerous trip to make. And he fell among robbers. And they stripped him, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. They stole all his stuff, beat him up, and left him there bleeding in the street, basically. And by chance, a priest, that's a real religious guy, work in the temple, 
was going down on the road, on that road, and when he saw him, the man that got beat up, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, now these are the ones that served in, directly in the temple. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, now you guys know the Jews hated the Samaritans, right? There was conflict between them. No, you could hear the people hearing the story. No, not a Samaritan, a Samaritan. <laughs> Who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt what? Compassion, which is one of the great expressions of love. And he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, like gave him medicine. He put him on his own beast, like throwing him in his own car, bleeding or whatever, brought him to an inn and took care of him. All of this took time, effort, energy, self-sacrifice. On the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I will return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now, I don't think that Jesus is teaching salvation by works here. I think he's simply saying, if you belong to me, if you were really keeping the essence of the Ten Commandments, which is to love God and love others as yourself, then you wouldn't have passed by this man. Is it possible that the man who's the lawyer, maybe the week before, maybe someone was hurt laying in the road because Jesus knows every heart. Maybe this really happened. Maybe that week someone was laying there bleeding and he was the man who would not do anything. Maybe that story hit closer to home than we really know. I don't know for sure, but it's a little bit of conjecture. Jesus tells the story. Maybe that man is the man. And when he realizes that a Samaritan, a person that he doesn't like, he's got a racial conflict with, he did the right thing. All of a sudden, man, that man is unmasked. And it must have been hard for him to admit. It was a, the one that showed him a compassion was a Samaritan. Yeah. You go and you do what he did. And you'll be more like God. You'll be more keeping the law. Remember I told you Torah in the Hebrew picture language means to hit the mark. If you want to hit the mark, if your question is sincere, you want to love God, you want to love others as yourself, and you're not just playing games with me, religious games where you want to get into de in a debate about the Ten Commandments or the essence of the law, if you weren't just trying to trap me, if you really have a heart to live out what you say you believe, and you're an expert in the context and the language and the original languages and how it should be applied, and Rabbi this says this and Rabbi this says that, then why don't you live out the commandments? Why don't you give like your heavenly Father gives? See, Jesus knew every heart. Now, in Luke 19, I want to show you, just keep going to your right, another account about giving. And this is about a wee little man named Zacchaeus. By the way, his name means pure, and he was anything but pure. Now, we're dealing with the same uh, region in the story. Jesus entered Jericho. He was passing through Luke 19, 2. There was a man called by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, he wasn't just a tax collector. He was the head guy over the whole region, apparently. Here's what happened in Israel. Rome was the dominant power of the day, and if you were a Jew, you could purchase a tax franchise 
from the Romans. The Romans had a quota that you had to meet, and as soon as you hit their quota, they didn't care. So you gave Rome what Rome wanted for, for that geographic region, and Rome might say something like this, we don't, I don't care what else you do. I don't care how you squeeze the people for money. So tax collectors were famous for skimming off the top. They would take what Rome wanted, pay Rome, and then they'd squeeze whatever they could get out of the people. Tax, tax, more tax. Gas tax, cigarettes tax, this tax, that tax. You, you name it, it gets taxed. He's the tax man. Oh, sorry. Anyway, that's an old song. And tax, tax, tax. And all of a sudden, Zacchaeus, this wee little guy, is living on the top of the hill. And everybody who's walking by is going, you know how he got that house, don't you? And they say even these guys that were, had the tax businesses, and especially this guy, they had men that would go collect from you if you didn't pay up. And if you got a knock at the door and there were three guys in dark suits with Italian last names, <laughs> they didn't come to play uh, you know, a board game with you. They came to collect. And so people hated this man. They despised him. He, they, people might walk by his house and say, that guy takes food off my table every single day. I hate him. And they might say, with a hatred that's from heaven. Certainly that's a guy that heaven hates. Maybe religious leaders said the same. We won't even take their alms in the temple because they're dirty, filthy. His name means pure, but he's anything but that. And so Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. He was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. He's a short little guy. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree, running for a man in that culture was very unusual, wasn't seen as dignified. He found a tree that's even worse to climb up in a tree. I don't even think about climbing up trees anymore, but some of you might. Anyway, he gets up in this tree in order to see Jesus, for he was about to pass through that way. Now, why do you think Zacchaeus was curious about Jesus? This guy's as wealthy as wealthy can be. He's powerful. Why would he care about some Galilean carpenter who apparently is doing miracles and that kind of thing? Because Zacchaeus' heart was bare. He was poor right here where it really matters. And it's possible that Zacchaeus had a wife and kids. And can you imagine how many times his wife and kids prayed for him? Oh, they had all the money in the world, but imagine how hated they were in that city. How maybe they were lonely. Well, Jesus is going to pass by that place. Zacchaeus has positioned himself to get a look. And Jesus came to the place and looked up and said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. I don't know the last time that Zacchaeus smiled or laughed. Maybe they were both laughing. But when they saw it, the crowd, they began to what? Grumble, 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 grumble. How could he be going to the house of Zacchaeus, that short little guy who rips off everybody? I thought he was coming to lunch at my house. I was going to make falafels, <laughs> fried falafels, a little avocado on the side. What's going on around here? Maybe the religious leaders of the town were like, he's supposed to come to my house. What's he going to? That guy. Not that guy. Not Zacchaeus. And off Jesus and Zacchaeus. <laughs> no! Grumble, 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 grumble. 
And they said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. (laughs) Yeah. Anyone that Jesus hung out with, you could be saying that, right? Because we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. So notice what happens. No record of a conversation. No time spent together recorded. Zacchaeus stopped. I don't know if this is when they were just beginning to walk to his house. It's almost as if the Lord looked into his soul and Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, and he certainly had, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house because he, Zacchaeus too, is a son of Abraham. I don't think just by descent, but by faith. Abraham believed the Lord and he was changed and he followed God. And then this declaration, the theme verse of the gospel of Luke, for the son of man, Messiah Jesus, has come to what? To seek and to save that which was lost. That is the last man, if I were making Jesus a list and I did it in my humanity, Zacchaeus would be the last man I would ever ask Jesus to go and visit and spend time with. But Jesus didn't come to seek and save righteous people. I didn't come to seek and save the righteous, but sinners, right? He he said, it's the sick that need a doctor, not people who are well. Do you imagine that maybe, because this is the way our Lord is, that a heart cry was going up from Zacchaeus' house. Just like the woman at the well, remember, married and divorced five different times, and Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with a woman who had been rejected her whole life. He had a divine appointment with a man that was a thief and a robber, but a man that apparently, at least his heart was open to Jesus, we can see that by his actions, but a God who came to seek and save lost people like you and me. That's the only reason I'm standing here right now. Because God seeks and saves lost people. And we're to do the same as the church. It's not just all about us as a Christian community. We're supposed to go out and say, Lord, would you take my feet to someone who his heart has been crying out? Maybe other People won't talk to this person, but how about if I talk to them? How about if I built a bridge just by being kind? If I just gave an extra five minutes of my week this week, instead of passing by to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that I got to do. Because once that time is gone, and we all know this too well, it's gone. So we just want to be sensitive to the Spirit. One final text. Jesus is walking down Luke 23, the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows, to the cross. And we find out from Matthew's gospel that there are two other uh, criminals walking with him. And they're both, you could check out Matthew to get confirmation of this. They're both robbers. They're both guilty of the crime of stealing and capitally condemned. So they're going to die on crosses right next to Jesus on that day. And so he goes down the way of sorrows and 
Everybody's weeping and crying, and these two other men are there. Two criminals. They're described as criminals in the text leading up to this in verse 32, 23, Luke 23, 32. Two others also were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. And I think you all know the story, but if you skip down to 39, one of the criminals, one of the robbers, one of the thieves who were hanged there on a cross next to Jesus, he was hurling abuse at Jesus, and he said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. He came to his senses, and he said, do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A thief nailed to a cross, he's, dying. he's dead. In a matter of hours, he's dead. He can't get down off the cross and go to a baptismal. He can't get down off the cross and go and do 35 good things to outweigh his bad things. He's got nothing. He's about to go into eternity. But he's in a very fortunate position. Because if you had to die on a cross, wouldn't it be nice to know that you were dying right next to the one who came to die for you? The one who came to take your punishment, the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. He always gave, he gave, he never took. Israel said they wanted a king in 1 Samuel, and Samuel was upset, and, he, and the scripture unfolds, the king will take, the king will take, the king will take, and he will take some more, and he will take some more. That's what kings, human kings do, but not this king. This king came to give. He's the king of a different kind of kingdom, amen? He won't take, he's come to give. Now, he wants all of you, but he's going to give you salvation. He's going to give you eternal life. The only reason you have breath in your lungs is because he gives, because he wove you together in your mama's womb, because he gave you eyes. He gave you a nose. He gave you a circulatory system. He gave you a beating heart. He gave you the time and the space in which you are to live and live out your life for his glory. Amen. This is the kind of king that won't take. He gives and he gives and he gives some more. And this thief said to this Savior, would you forget my sin and remember me when you come into your kingdom? No perfect sinner's prayer. Not all the elements of a sinner's prayer. Simply this, Lord, would you forget what I've done and it's quite obvious that I'm guilty. And would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. What did the thief do to earn paradise with the Messiah? Nothing. His sin finally got him to the consequences of a personal cross. But there was the Messiah treated on the cross as though he had committed their sins and our sins collectively. Now, don't look at anybody, you know, too long, but if you looked around the room, there's a lot of sin in this room. And it's up here too. And if the Lord kept a record of the times that I've just broken the eighth commandment, we won't even talk about the other ones. I'm dust. 
But I had a moment in my life where I said, Lord, would you forget my sin, and there's too many to count, and remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that day that I prayed that prayer along with my beautiful bride, I came into the kingdom of God. It's changed everything in my life. Amen? And I know that resonates with all of you right now. And Our God is good, and he's come to seek and to save the lost. Lord, you said that in the last days, lawlessness will increase and most people's love will grow cold. Lord, don't that, let that happen to us. Don't let our love grow cold. The Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. We live in an age of lawlessness, but we're not, we're not so far that you can't redeem us. But Lord, I, I would pray that you would forgive us for our sins. Here we are, Americans. We've been so blessed in so many ways. And Lord, we all could confess that we've squandered it at times. We've taken it for granted. We've maybe not shared the way that we should. Or maybe we've just given it away on things that don't matter. Some in here have gambling issues. They've gambled money away. And repentance is needed. But it's not just there, Lord. It's so many areas where we could talk about our work and our giving to the kingdom of God and what our priorities really look like. And that's why we say, Lord, if you kept a record of the number of times we failed, we could never stand. But you love us so much, you look past all of that. In fact, you nailed it to your cross so that thieves and murderers and liars and adulterers and idolaters could inherit the kingdom of God. But there is a catch, and that is that you require repentance. You require a moment where we admit we have fallen short and we run to the Savior. I'd ask all of you right now, if you have not met Jesus, if you didn't realize how much you need him, this would be a moment where you say, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? And you don't have to say this out loud, but you can begin to put it before him in your heart and just do a little business with him. He already knows. But this part I would have you say out loud. Would you repeat after me if this is you and you're, you want to ask Jesus into your life for the first time. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on that terrible cross for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I turn away from my sins and I turn to you for salvation. Make me a new creation in Christ. Cleanse me of my sin, Lord, and teach me your ways. I want you to be my Lord, my God, and my King. And I'm asking that you would do that work in my life as I surrender to you in Jesus' name.